You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, hello, strong, feisty women. So when I started this show in October 2020, we were really just on the tipping point of menopause in the mainstream and menopause hormone therapy exploding into the mainstream. And women were just getting the news via books like Estrogen Matters by Avram Blooming and Carol Tavris, who were both on the show early on, that hormone therapy was largely safe and women should be offered it when they reach the menopause transition. Well, fast forward two and a half years later, and we have reached a place where celebrities are proudly having hot flashes on television, which is awesome, and menopausal hormone therapy or hormone replacement therapy is a massive business, and this is all largely positive and progress, and as is always the case when something becomes massive mainstream news and big business, there have been some concerning outcomes. One is an issue that has arisen in the UK, where some women are reportedly being prescribed what could be called megadoses of hormone therapy, particularly estrogen. And in some cases, they're getting more than twice or even three or four times the maximum licensed dose. The article that covered this story, and I'll link it in the show notes, also noted that it was questionable because some of these women were not being given enough progesterone to accompany these high doses of estrogen, as there have been women reporting endometrial hyperplasia, which is an abnormal thickening of the uterine lining and a precursor to endometrial cancer. And the whole thing has been concerning enough that there was a joint safety alert from the British Menopause Society Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health Care, Royal College of General Practitioners, Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Society for Endocrinology, and the Royal College of Nursing Women's Health Forum, all getting together and basically stating, we are aware of increasing numbers of women being initiated on high doses of estrogen, which exceed the product licenses, not in line with any clinical guidelines. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So there's been a lot of yelling on the internet, a lot of fighting on Twitter, all the things that you would imagine. So I just called up my good friend and longtime hormone doc, Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, who is a double board certified endocrinologist and OBGYN physician, as well as a menopause medicine specialist, and asked if she'd be willing just to come on and talk about all this. I wanted to know how she determines what levels of hormones to prescribe, if and when she tests hormone levels, what are the risks of going way above and beyond the standard dosing recommendations, and where she thinks all this is going. And she did not disappoint. And I imagine this will not be the last conversation I have on this topic. I do want to qualify or clarify, really, a few points in this conversation. One, neither of us are anti-hormone therapy. Neither of us are on hormone therapy, but we 100% advocate for it and recognize that it is a lifesaver for millions of women, full stop. Neither of us believes that 
menopause should be defined as a state of deficiency. Because though our hormones are tapering off, it's a natural process that accompanies the end of our reproductive lives. And again, that is not to say many women don't benefit from topping off those hormone levels as needed. There are simply also millions of women who do very well without it. I have had both ends of the spectrum on this show. Nothing is wrong with you if you're on the path of hormone therapy. Nothing is wrong with you if you're not. Full stop. That's a light to note that science is ever changing. There are some very vocal advocates for hormone therapy who fully believe that it is necessary that all women should be on it at menopause to prevent cardiovascular disease and dementia and other conditions that become more common post-menopause. But there's a reason that the guidelines from all of those medical associations do not recommend hormone therapy as a primary prevention for those conditions, and that's because we just don't know that yet. And remember, it is very common to have science showing one thing at one point in time. And then as research goes on, it reveals a very different picture five or even 10 or 20 years down the line. I've seen it over and over and over again in my 30-year medical writing career. Carla talks about her insights on hormone testing from an allopathic point of view in this show based on the body of research she bases her practice on. I know that there are plenty of you who have your hormones tested she explains why it may or may not be a fruitful practice. I do plan to follow up on that topic in another episode down the road from another point of view. I just wanted to state that. Finally, I make a comment in this episode that I want to clarify. I say that I don't think that we as menopausal women are broken. I think something about Western culture is broken. And what I mean by that is I often wonder if our menopause experiences would be different if our world was different. We have stripped out of our lives so much that is supportive and valuable, like community, locally grown foods and healthy soil, fresh air, clean water. Our default settings are stress. We have to work and sometimes even pay money to exercise and get the nutrients we need. There are women who are getting up at 4 a.m. to exercise because they know the rest of their day is stressed out and sedentary. Do we have any idea what kind of menopause we'd be having if the modern world we lived in weren't so completely upside down? That's really all I'm saying with that. And it just frustrates me sometimes. Okay. I talked a bunch. So all I'll say about the rest of this is come on over to Feisty Menopause, sign up for my free weekly blog and follow us on Instagram and Facebook for all of your feisty needs. And a very quick thanks to Prevenix for their longtime support. I got a couple of reviews that were just too good not to share. Both are about Joint Health Plus, which is a product I swear by. One woman says, after a couple of weeks of taking this, my wrists stopped hurting doing handstands. And I noticed improved flexibility, which is awesome. I can't do a handstand with or without it. And another, I've been taking Prevenex Joint Health for over two weeks and can feel the difference. My knees are less stiff and achy. Ran a half marathon this past weekend without knee pain. I've had steroid injections and gel shots and did not get the relief I am getting with Prevenex. Amen and amen. All right. Just a few words about those awesome sponsors and let's get on with the show. Good sleep. 
The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. 
I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. All right, Carla. This is number four for you on HipBoy.com. It was a trifecta. What do we call a four? I don't know what we call a four. Uh, Monster quad. It's a four loco. Monster quad. I love it. That's awesome. (laughs) Anyway, I'm so happy that you came on here. Like we were talking a bit before I hit record. Because I do think that this initially I thought, oh, I'll just come and get some of your thoughts and I'll do a written post. But this really deserves a conversation. You know, this whole my head is spinning with what with what has happened with the whole menopausal hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy, whatever you want to call it, since I started this just two years ago. Yeah, it's um, it's so it evolves so quickly. And there are so many dynamics surrounding that evolution. And then layer on top of that, all of the cultural bias that's out there and how society portrays and sees menopausal women. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just um, it's it's really it's complicated. It gets complicated more and more every day. Oh, that's such a good we'll get into all that. We'll get let's before we get into that, because we both have thoughts, let's get into some of the nuts and bolts. Um, You know, as I mentioned in my intro to this show, we're at this crazy place where, you know, the, the royal governing bodies are like, please do not give women four times the hormone therapy dose, you know, and you've got this clinic in the UK giving, getting called out for giving super high doses of hormone therapy. So I, I actually was just like, okay, how do you decide the dosage for a woman who needs hormonal help in the menopause transition? Like if I were to come to you, how do you decide what doses of what you're going to put me on? So a lot of it is first trial and error. You want to use the least amount that you need that's going to help the symptoms. The goal is to help the symptoms and to help her feel better and resolve her issues Um, and use the least amount of med to, to accomplish that goal. That is for, you know, I mean, cost reasons, if nothing else, because, you know, you're paying for high doses of medication, you're paying a heck of a lot more money than something low dose. So from a cost standpoint, it makes sense. From a physiology standpoint, it makes sense. You know, you don't need to kill an ant with a cannon. Um, You know, so I start there. It's like, all right, what's what's the lowest dose that I need to help her with her problems? So, you know, someone comes to me with hot flashes. Oh, I'm waking up. They're really disruptive to my life. She's early menopausal. I usually start with a 0.05 patch. That's a pretty, it's not the lowest, lowest dose, but it's still a low dose that is maybe a third of the way up the scale. I usually start there because that's usually what takes care of it. And if she has any side effects, I might lower that dose down to the 0.0375. That's the lowest dose, I believe, that it comes in in uh, the Vivel dot. But uh, but that's how I decide. I go with what I know has worked in the past, and I use the lowest amount needed to uh, take care of her symptoms. And then two questions there. Like, where does the progesterone 
dosage come in? I mean, if she has a uterus, you need to put that into the mix, right? Yes, there is a threshold of what is protective for the uterus. This gets a little controversial. Uh, the standard gold standard is oral progesterone, 200 milligrams a day of micronized oral progesterone. That we know uh, through data studies, lots of research, that that adequately protects the uterine lining from those hyperplastic changes that can lead to ovarian cancer. I'm ovarian, uterine cancer. Now, many people have started using Mirena IUDs. And it's pretty well accepted that the Mirena IUD, that is different from the Skyla and the Kylina and the Lyletta, because they're different doses of progesterone. But the Mirena is the highest dose one. That has been pretty well accepted to be uterine protective too. Even though an IUD is off-label, for that purpose, there is lots of data behind its safety, so it is also used. Um, other doses, like 100 milligrams of micronized oral progesterone, are not thought to be adequate to protect the uterine lining, and uh, transdermal progesterone, um, unless it's part of one of the FDA-approved products, uh, like the Combi Patch, typically just independently prescribed, uh, like the compounded progesterone transdermal is not typically enough to protect the uterine lining. Um, so really with the progesterone, it's not so much what is the threshold dose to solve the symptoms, it's what is the dose required to protect the uterus, because that's really its main purpose. Although, are there, you know, I, I hear in the group sometimes that 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 you know when you talked about sleep and mood like there is there is a a symptom benefit there oh there is there absolutely is there absolutely is the reason why we don't titrate the doses to symptoms is because usually you know they're on estrogen and you're giving it for uterine protection anyway because they're taking um, estrogen but like when i just prescribe progesterone independent of estrogen um i will dose it for their sleep or for whatever. I'll usually use either 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams. That's that's what it comes in. Um, but I usually start with the 200. And um, if I have any side effects, I'll go down to the 100 because I find that the 100 oftentimes isn't sufficient. So that's why I start with 200. And that's just based on experience. And are there are there cases, and I'm, I'm guessing there are, where a woman um, doesn't need progesterone necessarily, you know, she doesn't have a uterus, but you would you would give that anyway for those symptoms that we're talking about that might be helped if, by progesterone? If a, if a woman doesn't have a uterus, then she doesn't need the progesterone for uterine protection. But it might be beneficial for her for sleep, and there's no harm in giving it for that. That's what I'm, yeah, that's what yeah, I was asking. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yep. And you've mentioned side effects a couple of times, and I'm wondering what you're looking out for when, you, when you're, you know, you said you would start me maybe on, you know, the one estrogen patch and look out for side effects. What are you looking for? Nausea. That's a big one. Um, a lot of people, uh, I know a lot of the infertility patients that I prescribe estradiol patches for, and it's granted it's at a higher dose, um, because it's for infertility, uh, types of protocols, but, uh, nausea can be something that people experience, um, with progesterone. There's a lot more side effects with progesterone. A lot of people have breast tenderness, bloating, sometimes weight gain, um, mood, mood. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes mood with the estrogen as well, but typically with menopausal, um, therapy, the doses are really low and we don't usually see mood issues with the estradiol. Uh, but sometimes you can see it with the progesterone. 
when you first started talking, you said if someone is early menopausal, a lot of the women uh, in this audience are also perimenopausal. And there's always that question about, should I, like, they hear from some pr- practitioners that they should not or cannot be starting hormone therapy because they are not yet menopausal. But that's not necessarily true, right? No, that's not true at all. I mean, actually, perimenopausal women, we use birth control pills. And the reason we use birth control pills is because you because you're perimenopausal, right? That's the time where you've got the hormonal chaos going on and you've got wide fluctuations. And the way you tamper that down and tame those fluctuations is with a, a higher dose of estrogen than what you would be doing with men with menopausal hormone therapy the menopausal hormone therapy doses are just they're not even going to touch those fluctuations so use birth control pills um, when they're still cycling because easing up that chaos is what will help make them feel better i really wish that doctors would frame that well for for the women that come in because they and I see it in the group, they'll be like, my doctor just said I should have birth control pills. What's that about? You know, I want hormone therapy when they're really kind of are getting hormone therapy. Right. I mean, it's all the same idea. It, it It is. And honestly, I think and I'll be honest about, you know, my own ignorance to this. I, I think a lot of OBGYNs don't realize what the dose differences are because mm. they're different types of estrogen. What you find in birth control pills is ethanol estradiol. That's a more synthetic type of estrogen. Whereas in menopausal hormone therapy, it's 17 beta estradiol, which is bioidentical. There's an actual conversion out there that, uh, I, that you have to put in an equation. I just looked up the conversion a few weeks ago because I needed it for something. I don't know it off the top of my head. I just know it exists. So I think a lot of doctors who may not be uh, prescribing both may not realize that, wow, this is a lot less estrogen that the receptors are seeing with menopausal therapy as opposed to birth control. It's not obvious. So that may be why they don't explain it is because they may not even necessarily realize it. And then when would you, and I see this in the group a lot too, when would you segue a woman from the birth control to the hormone therapy? Or how do you know when it might be an appropriate time to do that if someone has, you know, is in perimenopause and has been taking whatever birth control um, hormones? Like, what does that journey look like? Yeah, this a, that's a subject of a lot of discussion. And, um, you know, I remember being in one of the the, uh, the, the uh, annual meeting for NAMS, there was, uh, there was a, a segment just on that, how do you transition someone from birth control pills to menopausal doses? And it's really not that magical. Um, basically in someone who is low risk, you know, someone who's a good candidate for birth control pills, someone who's not obese, someone who's not a smoker, who doesn't have high blood pressure, assuming they're on it for the right reasons. Um, you can just keep them on it until they're about 55 years old, because by 55, 90 plus percent of women are menopausal. And I know there are many of you out there that are not at at 55 and that's okay. You guys are the outliers, but the vast, vast, vast majority of women are. And so if they're menopausal, it should be a seamless transition from the pill to the lower dose because they just don't need those high doses anymore. And you transition them. And if they now start having wild hot flashes that don't abate in a week or two, you know that, okay, 
maybe she needs to be on maybe a lower dose birth control pill. Maybe instead of a, a, a 30 microgram ethanol estradiol, maybe we go to a 20 or to a 10. Um, you can manipulate the birth control pill that way too. So it's a lot of trial and error, but in a low risk individual, 55, you can start uh, trying that transition and just go right into it. And you just want to because you don't want someone taking those high levels of hormones for infinity. Right, right. Because again, the risk of blood clots, you know, the higher your doses, uh, and plus, you know, it's a different type of estrogen. It's ethanol estradiol. It's not bioidentical estrogen. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you want to minimize risk, which is the reason why you would transition somebody. So who sets the upper limits of hormone therapy? Is that, is that the manufacturers and what is that based off of? I don't think anyone, any one individual or body will set a, an upper limit per se, where doses come from is the medical literature. You know, when there were studies out there, well, what doses were used on what types of women in the studies? And that's what manufacturers base their manufacturing on. It's like, okay, we see for the estradiol patch, a range in the literature mm -hmm. from, from 0.0375 to one milligram. And so they have, you know, different gradations and you pick which one, but they determine based on what the literature shows of what the typical range is of what, um, what works and what has the desired effect. So it's a combination of research in the literatures, um, the societal guidelines, because we know that NAMS puts out, you know, the hormone therapy position statements. And um, sometimes they talk about doses, sometimes they don't. But uh, that collectively is what leads the manufacturers to create those different uh, drug doses. And then as a physician and as a practitioner, are you free to to order whatever dosages you want? Yes, we can essentially do it. Um, you know, one would hope that one has a good rationale for going outside the standard of care. So then we talk about the standard of care. Well, who sets the standard of care? That's when you look at your guidelines set out by your societies. And the guidelines are often insufficient. And, you know, there's no perfect source. You know, you look at NAMS, you look at the National Osteoporosis Foundation, you look at many different bodies, and there is not one single one that is complete and completely reliable. So as a physician, sometimes I have to call her outside the lines, right? And so the process by which I do that needs to be justifiable because, I have, as a United States physician with a medical license, I am accountable to my state medical board and to other authorities within my field. So, you know, I have to be careful and make sure that what I'm doing can be medically justified and that I'm not doing the patient any harm. Yeah. And that, that is a, that is a big responsibility. So a couple, a couple of questions as, as we lead into this, you know, we've been talking about the um, delivery methods of hormones, patches, creams, they seem pretty popular. And one of the, one of the arguments, and we're going to talk about these very high doses in a minute, but one of the arguments for them that I've seen is that you need to exceed the doses with transdermal because not all of it is absorbed. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is, is there literature on that? Well, I mean, to me, 
if you're using a vehicle that isn't being absorbed well by the patient, that maybe you should consider using another vehicle um, rather than jacking up the dose, you know. Um, there are plenty of vehicles out there. There's transdermal patches, there's sprays, there's creams, there's oral, there's vaginal. Um, there are lots of vehicles out there. So if you're giving a patient something that you, for you know whatever your good reasons are, you think she's not absorbing it, change the vehicle. Um, you know, it, because if it's not being absorbed, that means you can't get a sense of what reliable dose her circulation and her body is seeing. That's not a good place to be. When you prescribe a medication, you want to have a good idea of what level of hormone the cells are seeing um, because you you want you want control over that. You want to know what's going on. That way, if something happens, you can troubleshoot it and figure it out. Um, but just turning up the volume, you know, rather than simply getting a new hearing aid, <laughs> seems seems like um, the more the more logical thing is just get the new hearing aid and, and let's make the situation optimal. So that leads into because if I were to just hear you say what you just said, I would then go, okay, so Carla is going to test the levels of hormones to see if I'm getting enough hormones. But you don't, I don't think we tend to think of, that's a, that's an area that, you know, hormone testing is so confusing. So you are not testing my hormones to see if I'm getting the right doses or how do you know if I'm getting the right doses? Yeah, you. I know you're getting the right dose when you tell me my hot flashes are so much better. And, you know, keep in mind, and this is, you know, I've used this analogy before, is that the bloodstream is like the street. And the tissues, the individual tissues, whether it's the brain or vaginal tissues or whatever else, they're the houses on the street. You can be in the street and have no idea what's going on in the houses. And so that's why in terms of symptomatology, checking circula circulating estrogen levels or progesterone levels doesn't really tell you what's going on in the tissue itself. Because, you know, every tissue has different enzymes, different receptors, and therefore the signal that gets to the inside of the cell, which is the most important thing because that's what's going to have the effect isn't necessarily related to the level in the circulation. So, you know, that's why we don't measure it because we know also in the literature that it's been shown many, many times that a woman's experience poorly correlates with hormone levels in the blood. Now, that doesn't mean I never check hormones. I just don't check them for the purposes of okay, uh, I'm giving her hormone replacement therapy or I'm giving her hormone therapy for her hot flashes. Am I in an adequate dose? I don't need to check a level. I need to just ask her, how are your hot flashes? But if I'm giving somebody testosterone, I do need to check the level because I do need to make sure I'm not overshooting the physiologic range, which could put her at risk for side effects. So it's a nuance, but there's a clear difference between the two. That makes a hundred percent sense to me. Like that, that I, that I do understand because that physiological dose, uh, I mean, we, we have some knowledge of what that looks like for testosterone, right. As far as like, don't do yes. irreparable things 
Yeah, you want to keep it in the normal range for a reproductive age woman. And in the standard assays in the United States, that's usually between 20 and 80. I think the units are nanograms per deciliter. When you start getting above 80 into the hundreds where pellets usually will take you, that's when you can get the irreversible voice changes. That's when you can get male pattern baldness. That's where you may experience insulin resistance and other, uh, other potential effects. Um, so when I prescribe testosterone, I do like to keep it between the 20 and 80, because that's what's been the best studied from a safety standpoint. Right. And just to put a fine point on this, the idea of testing estrogen and progesterone for physiological levels or to balance them or all these things we're hearing, there really isn't a scientific basis for that, Correct. There really is not in allopathic medicine. Um, I can't speak to what the functional medicine docs and the naturopaths have for their rationale for doing this because I'm right, not- Right, because they do do it. They do. And yeah. I'm not naturopathic trained and I won't pretend to be. But what I can say is that in the literature that um, has been published within the scientific space in that the allopathic medicine, that, those, that's the standard, that's, that's an MD, that's a typical doc that you see, that's an allopathic physician. In our body of literature, there is no basis for checking hormones because the experience really correlates very poorly with hormone levels. And like I said, the other point about testosterone, I'll go back to that, when we test for testosterone levels, I'm not testing for therapeutic effect. What I'm testing for is that I'm in a safe range. That's what the test is for. Whereas when naturopaths or other people test these hormones, they are testing for a therapeutic range. And that's what I think is unnecessary. You know, it's therapeutic when the symptoms go away. Which sort of leads us to this, you know, and you can, you can read it in, in the, uh, it, it, uh, it was in the Daily Mail, which got a lot of heat because people don't like the Daily Mail, but it's not the first time that this has been uh, published in other places that that this clinic is is saying, like, if you do not, if you're not getting relief, we're just going to keep giving you more hom more hormones. And they, you know, I, what do we know about the risks of taking two, three, even four or more times the what's the standard of hormone therapy? assuming that the body that the circulation and the tissues are actually seeing three to four times more because we talked about the absorption issue and again we're, we're turning up the volume but not fixing the hearing aid um who knows what the circulation is actually seeing but if the circulation is seeing these higher doses you're you're kind of out of no man's land. First of all, we know that there can be a dose response relationship between blood clots, pulmonary embolism, and, and hormone exposure. We, we know that exists. What I think is less clear is whether or not there's a dose response relationship between exposure and cancer risk. Um, we know that the low doses associated with hormone therapy have a very, 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 very small risk of breast cancer. It's like 10 in 10,000, 8 to 10 in 10,000, I think it is, from the Women's Health Initiative study. Um, that's pretty low. Um, and so people haven't really looked at, well, you know, would a higher dose create a higher risk of cancer? When you have so few people getting cancer from menopausal hormone therapy, it's very hard to power a study to look at different doses of it. So we don't know if there's a dose response to uh, for cancer risk. 
But it's something to think about, you know, just because the study hasn't been done doesn't mean there's no risk. There could be. We just don't know what it is. But I think what scares me more is the risk of blood clots. That's 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 what keeps me up at night with my patients, because I see it more than anything else in healthy people with no risk factors. That's what's so scary about it. Are there concerns about not matching the progesterone and the uterine risk? Yeah, because there there was a question like if you are because most of the dosing is going super high on the estrogen and not as much on the progesterone and using sort of abnormal bleeding to make to see if we're at an adequate place for progesterone. So progesterone, I mean, if you're menopausal, you shouldn't be having any bleeding even when you're on hormone therapy, because if you are having bleeding on hormone therapy, it means that there is something unstable in the uterine lining. When someone is on hormone therapy with adequate progesterone to project to protect the uterus, the uterine lining is super, super, super thin. So you shouldn't have bleeding. If you do have bleeding, that means that something is making the cells in the uterine lining grow. You don't want that in menopause because when stuff is growing in the uterus and menopause, that could mean that it's precancerous. So if one is having bleeding on menopause hormone therapy, they need to have an ultrasound of the uterus to measure the thickness of that lining. And if that lining is over seven millimeters or so, they need to have a biopsy or a DNC or some test of the tissue that's in there to see if it's precancerous. But you don't use bleeding as a litmus test to see if you're having enough of one thing or another. You shouldn't be having any bleeding at all if you're on safe menopause hormone therapy. I think the issue was if you were talking about these superdoses of estradiol, then bleeding was an indicator if there was also enough progesterone to counter the super. Well, the thing is, this is the other risk of super high doses of estrogen is that you're going to cause overgrowth of the uterine lining and potentially a precancerous conversion. So, you know, to counteract, to counteract. Did you just turn up the progesterone? No, um, because, you know, you still have this proliferation that's going on in, in the uterine lining. The progesterone doesn't necessarily stop that until, you know, after a certain point. And again, we're getting beyond what's even studied out there. It protects the uterus from typical doses that has been you know, used in the studies, studied doses. But when you're so far off into left field, you know, you're in a place that is beyond that of study. And if you're having bleeding, then that progesterone is not protecting the uterus and increasing the progesterone may or may not continue to protect the uterus. And for me, I don't think I would want those high doses proliferating all those cells in my uterine lining. Um, that's just not a safe situation. And you're out in no man's land when, you know, you're saying, oh, well, just increase the progesterone. That hasn't been studied. We don't know if that's protective or not. Okay. That, that answers that question. Yeah. So where, where do you think I I have, I have, I'm I'm of so many minds on all of this because, because, because we know that medicine, uh, Traditionally, I mean, take the take the Women's Health Initiative study as an example of this. That that research was not handled well. I mean, I won't say it was bad research necessarily, right? I mean, they were looking for something and they found something. 
the way that it was presented and the way that it was not, you know, analyzed and, and all of that was, that was the problem. Absolutely. And it threw a giant wet blanket on the whole thing for decades. You know, it's, it's, it's really problematic. So I am, I am, as someone who has been a medical writer swimming in PubMed since 1991, I am sympathetic to people who say we cannot wait for the medical system to catch up. I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to that because man, you know, in 1991, 94, I wrote a book called uh, healing with vitamins. That was all about, you know, antioxidants and they were going to save everything, cancer, heart, you name it. (laughs) And they ended up being kind of disastrous in the doses that people were saying. Right. Sure. Like, so I'm real cautious about all this. I'm real cautious about the people who are like, hormone therapy is going to save the world and it's going to protect your brain and your heart. And this, I'm like, we don't know. We don't know. These studies in 10 years, we could see a whole new batch of research, a whole new batch going, oh, you know what? We were wrong. It was just this one situation that was helpful and all these are terrible and everyone will be upset and go up in arms like this can happen. And it does all the time. Absolutely. So like, how do you help people swim through these waters where it's like, okay, like, maybe there is something to giving higher doses or maybe there's not like where do we where do you see this do you have any idea where this is going because you look at even bioidenticals like people are like oh they're a bunch of bullshit but now it's like well the form of progesterone probably maybe does really matter you know if it's Mm -hmm. bioidentical versus and that's what the naturopaths have been saying so people can point fingers in every direction and be like you you were right you were right you're wrong I don't know, like, how do you help women cut through all that? Yeah, without a doubt. And that's going to keep happening, you know. Um, and there's, there's, you know, like I said before, there's no one place that is the best authority for all of this information. Every discipline has pearls to contribute to the whole issue and um, pearls to contribute to the methodology of figuring out what the right thing to do is. But I think what's important is the the process. So for myself, if I'm going to, and I'll use the analogy again, if I'm going to color outside the lines, I need to check myself and say, why am I doing this? And is there any harm that can be caused by it? So, you know, one, one thing I, uh, here's a good example. So say I have a young 25 year old professional CrossFit athlete that I'm seeing who has had uh, no periods because she's overtraining and underfueling, and she is starting to become osteopenic. Now she is 27 years old. The standard of care is to give her birth control pills, but she's a top 10 CrossFit athlete. She really doesn't want to be taking birth control pills because we know that can impair her performance. And when you're a world top five, you need every edge you can get. So how do I protect her bones but let her still perform. Well, I don't want to give her birth control pills, but that's what the big masses tell me I'm supposed to do. Okay, I'm not going to do that. So how can I get creative? Well, I know that only very, very low, low doses of estrogen are required to have bone benefit. You can give someone a 0.0375 patch of estradiol and they will get bone benefit. But remember, how much lower dose that is from the uh, from the birth control pills? Well, maybe I can give her this little tiny dose to help her bones, but not impact her performance. This 
strategy is way the hell out in left field. And all of my colleagues would probably flog me for it and, you know, bring me before the board. But think about it. I'm using an FDA approved safe patch. It's, you know, it's um, it's enough to because we have data that says that it protects her bones. I could give her an oral progesterone. We know that oral progesterone doesn't affect performance the way the combined birth control pills do. But that patch will be enough to help her bones because I know the research is there to back that up. I'm not doing any harm. I'm using a safe and approved substance and I'm just using it off label. So that's my process and that's how I check myself. I got creative, but I got creative with things that have already been researched. They're puzzles on the pieces of puzzle on the table. I just made a new picture with it. So I think that's how women can sift through this is that when you have a provider that's telling you to do something that maybe you're not sure of, quiz them on the rationale because you have every right to ask them, you know, basic things like, well, is this a medication that has been used before for this? Has it? Has it not? Is it safe? How long has this medication been around for? Um, what are other uses of this medication? You know, quiz your doctor and figure out, is there, uh, you know, what are the side effects? What are the risks of me taking this? And make sure that their rationale is sound because it's more about the process than it is about anything else. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I like that advice. I also, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, in the case of some of these super high doses, we're hearing doctors say, well, I, you know, I find that these very high doses are what it takes to, you know, assuage whatever you're you're feeling. So I, where where are you there? You know, you have to. I mean, there's this relationship where you have to trust what they're what they're providing you, the information that you're pro providing. I think if I were sitting, you know, trying to put myself on the side of the table of the consumer who doesn't have knowledge of it. Um, I think the question would be, well, is it common to use these doses? Um, have there been studies of women who have used doses like this? Is there anything that I can point to? And a physician should be able to say, yes, there is a study, and I can point you in the direction of that. And patients do that with me all the time. I point them to the guidelines um, because that's a, a lot of times what I'm going on, or there may be a specific study. Um, that I might be able to point them in the direction of. But that would be the first thing. It's like, well, do you do this all the time? Is this common? You know, is this, is this common? Because, you know, I heard on hit plan, not pause that maybe there I should be doing a 0.0375 patch or whatever, you know, wherever they're reading. So that's probably what I would question say, well, how often do you do this? You know, and is there research behind it? And where can I find it? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. If you were to if you were to look out your crystal ball, where do you think this is all going in the next even two years? Wow, that's a great question. I think I I think you're gonna see it's like a pendulum, you know, like all of all of these things that we see, they hit a precipice and then they retract, and then there's another precipice somewhere else, and you know. I see that continuing to happen. You know, there's going to be uh, fads. People are going to run with certain narratives and then it's, it's going to settle out. Yeah. You know, what's going on in the UK, I'm not sure is sustainable. 
you know, they had this huge shortage of hormone therapy over there, you know, because there was this narrative that everybody needs it, <laughs> you know, and that, you know, damn it, you're, you're, you're less of a, of a woman if you don't do it. Um, and so what happened was, is that you have people now getting this medication who don't really need it. And it's taking away from the women who really do. So, you know, sometimes the conditions will will dictate which way the pendulum swings. Um, so I think that maybe that's why I don't think what's happening in the UK is sustainable. You know, it's going to hit a point where it's like, OK, this, you know, not everybody can be on hormone therapy. This doesn't make sense. And then, you know, they're going to have to adapt. And, yeah. you know, they're just going to have to adapt to that because it's unsustainable. And I think that will happen here in the U.S. too. You know, different narratives will rear their head, um, and then they it'll it'll run its course until another narrative surfaces. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I try not to get. You know, I mean, you can go on Twitter and watch people yelling at each other all day about this stuff, right? And I I try not to get embroiled in all of that. Mm. I, I I like watching both sides of the war and and learning from like just watching the war. Cause I've seen so many of these play out. The only thing that makes me dig my heels in even just instinctively is this drum beat that is getting louder. And I, I see it coming here as well that we all should do this. We all need it. We all, all women should, you know, I mean, this is just this whole deficiency narrative that all women should be on this. And you know, I, I have been very transparent. I, I am not, and I feel great, you know, and I, I like, but, but this, this, this narrative makes the, the, all these women I know who are like thriving beautifully and feel great, feel like, okay, am I, is this, am I, is there something like, am I, am I setting myself up for dementia, heart disease, all the things you hear them all the time? Like, how can you not be protecting your brain? I'm like, well, we don't actually know that we don't, we don't know that, 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 Sure, for people who have symptoms and there does seem to be um, for people for whom there is this big window of vulnerability, especially when you're talking about brain health and they have high symptoms, there may be an, a, a window of opportunity with hormones like that. That makes sense to me, but it doesn't make sense to me that we all are vulnerable and we all need to take hormones for the rest of our existence. I just I I can't. I just can't wrap my head around it. It doesn't like inside. It does not make sense to me. I don't think that there's something inherently about us that is broken. I think there's something inherently about a lot of Western cultures that is broken. Absolutely. Because you see this way more here than yeah. you're seeing in so many places where women live to like a hundred and do and are, are like doing amazing things. Right. And yeah. they're not on hormones. Absolutely. And that, nothing against them again. Like, yeah. please, by all means, you and I are both like, if like, mm-hmm. There's a great tool. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I prescribe, I, I write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prescriptions for hormones for people every year as a fertility specialist and as a menopause specialist. But I don't take them myself because I don't need them. I mean, I'm one of those people that I won't take an ibuprofen unless my head is ready to explode. Um, I'm just, that's just me. I just don't like to take stuff. Um, and I think we see this, you know, here's a pill sort of narrative and you need this you know in lots of other places too and i agree with everything you say i think that narrative of everybody needs this is going to continue and the evidence for that is that it's continuing in other areas i mean for a while there everybody needed a statin <laughs> you know 
And there's a lot of pharma push out there. Um, you know, we, we see it with lots of different things. And it's just, this is the way the pendulum is going, is that everything can be cured with a pill. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of push for it. There's a lot of push for lots of invasive procedures for preventative care. And I'm not saying don't get them. I'm saying you need to be selective about them. Does every single person really need an invasive colonoscopy? Maybe not. Maybe you risk stratify those people. You know, but especially in allopathic medicine, that to me is where the big fault is in allopathic medicine is it's too much reliance on procedures and diagnostic tests and, you know, in medications and, and less uh, focused on what's right in front of you. Let's look at the human condition and every person is individual. And that's what I like about, you know, functional medicine and what I like about osteopathic medicine is that there is more attention to the person as a whole and as an individual. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, market forces out there in allopathic medicine that um, they're there. You know, those those demons are there. You know, I don't like to, you know, a, a accuse people of wanting to make money off of people. But, you know, we all know it's out there. Um, we'd be naive to to think it's not. And, and the forces are enormous. I mean, you know, Oprah... Oprah's getting a lot of press right now for talking about her uh, menopause transition experience and her heart palpitations. And to be clear, I am very glad she is sharing that the whole heart palpitation and the heart, that those effects are not talked about enough. So great. She is opening that conversation up. The part of me that has been in this business for a very long time, though, I'm like, she's 69. That happened. When did that happen? She didn't talk about it then. Why are we talking about this now? You know why we're talking about this now. Sure. Uh, it's the 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 empire that is going to be menopause care for good and for bad is upon us, you know, and, and it's by and large, there will be great positive things that come out of this. But I think we all have to be very aware uh going forward yeah for sure for sure and you know the 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 answer isn't always medicine the, the answer isn't always a pill you know pills are great for specific things but they need to be used more surgically than they're being used right now it's not like candy that you disseminate to everybody um you, you have to be judicial about it and it it and you know, the body is an amazing thing. If you just look inside of it and optimize how it works naturally, magical things happen. Um, but, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of money to be had in, in, uh, in doing it that way. Or in cognitive behavioral therapy. Like I can't, like yeah. that comes up on the show as much, if not more than hormone therapy, you know, and the research on cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty good when it comes to hot flashes and anxiety mm -hmm. and sleep and menopausal symptoms. And, uh, you know, there's many ways up this mountain. And I, I, uh, I encourage people to, to find them and to, and to just take this time to really, to really go inside and see what you need. And there's, there's ways to know if you are okay, you can check your cardiovascular health. You can check these things, right? You can see if you're doing okay. You don't, you don't need to assume that you need to to start any kind of medication regimen without first doing that, that analysis of yourself and like, are you doing, you know, is your foundation good? Right, exactly. And, and I think we also have to be aware just completely independent of medicine is just what culture does to, 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 to women. It's like, there was a really 
somehow society thinks that they should tell us what we should and shouldn't do. Uh, there was a really funny post on um, on, on the Facebook group about I, I, I someone was saying w- whether women over fifty or sixty should have long hair. Oh and, my God, yes. And I'm I'm reading this thing now. My hair goes down past my waist, right? I'm like. Why would I even listen to someone tell me whether my hair should or shouldn't be long over 50? Why the hell would I even listen to anyone like that? Isn't isn't that kind of messaging kind of what has got us into this funk to begin with? We've listened for too long in the 1980s that um, our thighs shouldn't touch. We need to be skinny. We need to not eat and train more so that we can say skinny. Isn't listening to what society told us we should do really what got us into this pickle right now that we're all dealing with? I think we just got to stop listening to what people tell us we should and shouldn't do and start really doing what makes sense and, you know, making our own way. Amen to that. It's like the cosmopolitan do's and don'ts, like all of the things that we grew up with, like Terrible pictures of women with bars over their eyes, you know, like shaming them in magazines. Like that's what we grew up with, folks. And I, to your point, I think we just need to reject people telling us like, you need to do this. You shouldn't do this. And this hormone therapy thing is just one more, you know, one one more piece of that. You know, it's one more vehicle for them to try to say, okay, we're going to establish this is the norm and this is what you're supposed to do. Well, I think that 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 covers the questions that I had. I'm very, very appreciative of you coming on and having this conversation. Every time we talk about hormone therapy, I'm a little clearer on on it, just like because it is really confusing. I mean, it's very there's so many pieces to it. There's so many forms and variations and dosages and outcomes that I think we're going to be. Well, probably this this might not be the last conversation, but is there anything that we did not discuss that you think would be germane for people to know as this rolls forward, as the whole menopause hormone therapy conversation continues in the mainstream. Yeah, I I think you do a better job than just about anybody out there of outlining this and giving it airtime and explaining it and having, you know, other guests besides myself on here talking about all these things. I think, I think that's fantastic. You're awesome, awesome resource. I think the thing, you know, we talked a lot about hormones and you're right. It is very confusing. I think for people listening, I would just say, put the hormones aside and think about the process that your physician is going through to make their recommendation. And this can be not just for hormone therapy, but for anything they're telling you, you should put in your body is you want to know what makes sense for you. You know, it's like, why are you, what is this medicine going to do for me? What are the risks? Is it commonly used? And do you have any research that can, you know, be an example for for somebody like me that is demonstrates the, the use for what you're recommending it for? Just those simple questions for your provider will keep them honest, not just about hormone therapy, but it will keep them honest about anything else that they're prescribing you for you to put in your body. Great advice for life. I'm going to leave it right there. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with marathon swimmer Sarah Thomas, who holds the records for the first person to swim Lake Champlain, a feat that covered 104.6 miles in over 67 hours, 
and to do an English Channel four-way, which is, as it sounds, crossing the channel four times without stopping, a feat that took 54 hours, among other many insane swimming accomplishments. And she battled aggressive breast cancer at just 35 years of age, and now at age 40 is also in the throes of menopause. This was such an amazing and humbling conversation. I absolutely loved it, and I'm sure you will too. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap.